0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global Venture Stories. I'm here today with two repeat guests, fan favorites I must say. Brett Burson of First Round and Daniel Gross of Pioneer. Uh, Brett, Daniel, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Delighted, delighted to be here. Thank you very much for having us.
0: So uh, we're here to talk about a number of things. Uh, a couple of them are startup tropes, tropes related to company building that uh, we have nuanced or non-obvious opinions about. Brett, that was a topic we were talking about. One, one that I'm curious uh, to start off with is picking startup ideas you know it's it's a trope in silicon valley that it's execution that matters uh, not not ideas and give away your ideas they're they're free or they're worthless H- how do you think about picking uh, ideas at first round or how do you advise people who are looking to do their next thing uh, during the idea sort of generative process
2: i, I think it's i'm just, i'm right now very curious about the the sort of absolute earliest stages of of company creation and what are opportunities for Uh, sort of more mechanization. And I think in in talking with a bunch of people and sort of observing, I think one of the things that's been super interesting in the last 10 years has been the amount of information about company building that's kind of been open sourced or sort of shared broadly. it's, It's easy to forget, but like the sheer volume of like videos and podcasts, like the work that you do, writing sharing ideas through conferences, executives leaving from one company and going to another, like the amount of information flow is, is astonishing. And at the same time, I feel like the absolute earliest stages of company creation, kind of the, the kernel of the idea and fleshing that out into something, whatever you want to call it, feels like the most underexplored part of this, uh, life cycle. And and you have lean startup and sort of that that would be like an example of kind of knowledge dissemination. But outside of that, which is all ten to fifteen years old, it feels like everyone thinks it's kind of the dark arts, yeah. and that you know you kind of you know maybe you you solve your own problem as kind of like best practice, and then kind of see where it goes. And, and, and I think that's starting to change and, and, and some of it is, I think, is more institutions at the early stage kind of have a larger sort of perspective they're able to kind of disseminate. But broadly speaking, and, and I'm curious what both of you think, like the amount of actual detailed information about what, what are the properties of good ideas is astonishingly small relative to like running a product team, for example, in terms of best practice material. So like I find that I find that kind of curious and, and I tend to think that, that the, the two kind of modalities of company construction or idea generation can either happen top down or bottoms up. And I think in, in sort of in sort of Silicon Valley, kind of more top down top down company creation is really uh, considered quite negative. And, you know, this kind of hunting for your thing or whatever is sort of cast quite negatively. And and I think that that shouldn't necessarily be the case. I think actually both modalities of company creation can be phenomenally successful, but I think it's less in vogue to sort of say, I'm going to be pretty methodical about starting a company. Everybody, don't start a company until, you know, you can't stop, you, you can't go to sleep with these ideas that you have or, and, 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 and like, I'm not convinced that that's the case. But I think in general, you kind of have this sort of top down or bottoms up. Top down would be, you know, I'm interested in climate. And so I'm going to spend the next few years figuring out and zeroing in and landing on something that I think could, you could sort of stamp out a company around. Bottoms up is, you know, I'm, um, I'm working at Google and I realized that that sort of this tool that we built, you know, we could take out and sort of build an enterprise business around. Or, you know, I was trying to, you know, find a place to sleep and I didn't like the hotel options and I go and build X, Y, or Z. And I think that what all of these either bottoms up or top down ideas have in common is that in retrospect, there's a very clear chess game that is played to get to sort of whatever this long-term thing that's quite interesting is. And either that, I think that chess game is uh, intentional or unintentional, but it sort of always sort of plays out in sort of those multi-moves. And I think in general, the the thing that I've observed is when you talk to a lot of people, they tend to focus on long-term ideas. And so I think that either if you're doing something top-down or you're doing something bottom up, the things that matter are the next six, 12 and 18 months. And I think in general, that's underweighted. And so in sort of looking at at sort of um, threads that sort of connect ideas, I tend to think like a really critical eye to like the very, very short term is on average kind of underexplored, particularly I think when you're doing tops down company. Um, So like, I'm very interested in cancer. I'm gonna devote the next chapter of my career to cancer. You you, for a whole host of reasons, end up being very long-term focused in your ideas. But ultimately, the, the thing that matters is actually the chess game that's going to unfold. And as we all know, most companies don't, they, they sort of fail in the short term, not the long term. Yeah. And so I think all of the best ideas, whether intentional or unintentional, have this fairly elegant chess game that get played out over very, very long t- periods of time. And when people are thinking about ideas, I don't think they think enough about, like, in month three, like, who cares about this? Yeah. Who's buying it? How do we have some sort of unfair distribution advantage or sort of some other insight around
1: that? I don't know. It's a bit rambling.
0: No, no, I like it. Uh, Daniel, how do you think about it?
1: I guess the interesting question is, um, why do you think Brett uh, that people get fixed on this like long term fantasy? Like it would seem obvious. Like okay, you're going to start a business. Um, you got to figure out like how to make revenue. Set up your lemonade stand. So, like, wh- why do you think there's this kind of mind virus people have where they can only kind of think long term?
2: I think that it's probably maybe it's a bastardized sense of, like, what it is to start a company might be one. Right. Another is people like thinking long to, like, one of the things that I've always been super interested in is obviously a lot of the work that we do at First Round is mm. is trying to get stuff out of people's heads and disseminate it to lots of people. Right. And one of the things that I found that's, that's very counterintuitive is the more senior the individual is, on average, the harder it is for them to get to share a clear, useful idea. And so I find like if you're if you're talking to the CEO of a 25-person company and you, you're talking to them about how they run the company – they can speak very, very clearly. Okay. Monday we have a meeting. Right. Here's who's in it. Here's why I structure it. Right. When you sit down with somebody that's running a 10,000 person company, everything is mission, vision, values, alignment, strategy. you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and some of it might be similar that we just enjoy sort of, you know, either in company creation or company building, you get to a certain point and it's just more, you either don't want to dumb yourself down. I'm a CEO. I'm not going to say how my staff meeting is run. That's ridiculous. You know, you want to hear about my big thoughts. Or I think when people are exploring ideas, it's much more fun or, 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 or satisfying to think about kind of I'm going to solve climate in this way. Not on not in week nine. I'm going to be in Nebraska with this customer figuring out, you know, and it's probably something something related to that. But that's just a-
0: also probably the investors, right? Investors are less interested in week nine and more interested in when you're pitching your business. What does this become? How does this become a billion dollar company? So it could
1: be the tail wagging the dog. Guerrilla warfare versus the generals. Yeah. It's funny. I I used to, I think we've all gone through the experience of, you know, you, you meet the executive of the large company, maybe one you've looked up to your entire life. And, um, you know, it's the aphorism, um, people say about celebrities, make sure not to meet them, um, because they'll disappoint you because all they talk about is these vague platitudes but yeah, I do wonder, maybe it's thinking long term and also some element of, um, their figurehead at that point. There is, they're basically a Netflix film, right? And so they have to deliver Barack Obama-esque style speeches all the time. And so that's the, that's the competency they have. I don't know if you experienced this though. And this is a bit of a tangent. Sorry. We'll go back to the main topic in a moment. I do find when you get sometimes you can get that person behind closed doors. And I found maybe just only once or twice in my life where you immediately see the other side like a, a flip just switches, and they 're like, "Okay, let me tell you what 's actually going on mm-hmm. and 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 so that kind of beckons another thing going on with these highfalutin leaders, which is I think there 's a lot of media training that has just been seeped into their inner core, just layers of defense, like ogres from Shrek. <laughs> the, the way I kind of think about it is you know why aren 't more yeah founders working on more ideas, and I think a lot of it stems from. The fact that, I think, broadly speaking, there are two types of jobs. There are clear jobs and opaque jobs. A clear job is one where the next step is very achievable. There's motivation to accomplish it. There's someone to impress. There's someone to perform for. An example of this would be a middle manager at a large company. It's very clear what you're supposed to do. It's very clear what your deliverables are. Um, You're working as a barista in Starbucks. The game is very clear. It's built as beautifully as, you know, Nintendo. Uh, could master opaque jobs are ones where it's not really clear what the next step is it's not really clear motivationally what should get you excited in the morning and it's not really clear like what to do um, the investor job I believe is an opaque job and a lot of people suffer from that it's just like not always clear what to do especially if you're kind of a lone wolf I think the ultimate opaque job is one of the founders especially the early stage founder super early stage. You can have the idea um, and you can even think of the idea yourself, but you start working on it. And at some point, you just don't have the motivation to continue because there's no map, roadmap, game, whatever. And I think part of, uh, Brad, going to your point, part of the addiction to the long-termism thing is at least that's some type of motivational thing is, you know, I can think about it. I can get excited about myself as a future Elon. I can tell my friends I'm doing this. And I actually don't want to think about what I'm going to do in the next three months because that's cognitively uncomfortable and that's work. And, I th-
2: and yeah, most of it's not particularly pleasurable.
1: It's not pleasurable. It involves, yeah. Um, a lot of Occam's razor doing the simple things, not the complicated things. Um, so I think a lot of it is because the job is opaque and there are an infinite number of startups that are Git repos with 10 commits in them. And someone just gave up at that point. And I don't know if it was because, Life got a little bit too complicated. They just kind of got a little bit stuck. And, you know, we could kind of, sorry to have mostly a lot of metaphors that are bad, mostly related to running, but we can kind of construe like a hypoxic runner where the slightest grade in, in the track will just cause them to faint, you know? And I think that's the story of, you know, the, 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 the founder sitting there being like, I'm not even sure I should do this. And then, oh, you know, Python error installing what? Ah, oh, fuck. Goodbye. Pardon my French. Um, and I think that's what kills a, lo- a lot of startups, weirdly, is it's, it's not clear. And to your point about material, the, uh, the thing I hope to do with with Pioneer, the thing I think first runs done with a lot of their material and kind of humanizing the startup story is to actually provide that structured, rigid map. And so you kind of realize this is where I am, and I'm actually not that far from the next step. It's not too unlike the same mechanics done in video games, the same mechanics say done by a personal trainer. I remember when I was starting my company, I mean, I kind of lapsed into success. We can kind of view founders as, you know, imagine a giant room and there's thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people just mindlessly button mashing pianos, just playing random stuff. Most of it's garbage. But like once in a while, you stumble across something that's like a half-baked tune, and then the investor comes over to you and is like pats you on the back, or actually like punches you and says, you know, play harder in the in the Whiplash scenario. Um, are you rushing or are you dry? Have you guys seen Whiplash? No, I mean, okay, never mind. Um,
2: oh no, no, I, I've seen it a while ago, but I don't remember. Yeah, it was, suppose, no, yeah.
1: Um, You're you using braid for better things. And then that person is like, oh, okay, I guess that's a good chord. I should play a little more. They play a little more. And the, but but the, but that first initial process was really a mistake, happenstance, I think. So I think the main thing we'd want to be in the business of if we want to make more startups is is taking more people that are in that very precarious stage of like toying with a thing and giving them positive motivation.
2: Now, I'm curious that that kind of going back to sort of tropes kind of flies in the face of the the sort of most dominant trope, which is founders are these tenacious people they are relentlessly resourceful and they
1: let me show you their genetic phenotype they're born with
2: and 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 i'm i'm super curious as we sort of started talking sort of talking about this and and sort of what you're talking about is sort of the idea of nudges right that that you know sometimes at the right point in time you can kind of just push somebody just ever so slightly and it'll change sort of their old overall trajectory and so do you do you consider yourself on on sort of one of the spectrum would be There doesn't need to be any more systems or whatever else. These tenacious people are going to do it with you or without you. And the other would be sort of the – I'm trying to think of the the best example that that, that actually way more people could be starting companies. If you just kind of make it just a little bit easier, just kind of give them the right support at the right point in time. And I kind of view those as as a little bit of opposing. And I'm sure you could plot people maybe on that and the – Certain people, regardless of what system was in place, could sort of, yeah. you know, see it through.
0: Just to add to that real quick, the, the, the tenacious people and people who promote sort of this idea of tenaciousness, that what they worry about is if you make it too easy, that the entrepreneurs might not develop the requisite tenaciousness needed to uh, flourish. Or it might be too hard to determine who is actually tenacious and thus you make a bunch of bad investments. <laughs>
1: Yeah, assuredly, right? Like if you remove the, um, you know, once astronauts leave Earth, you remove the gravity, their muscles atrophy because it's a little bit too easy, right? And so um, the environmental stressor creates greatness. But uh, yeah, I, I think there is probably a fixed pool of people that would make for great founders. I, I, I think we are only at a small fraction of that pool. Like I do not think it is a game for everyone. I think you have to be able to have a certain level of vitality, of energy, of conscientiousness that, you know, for whatever reason is not globally spread in the population. Um, But I think we could expand the pie much larger. And I don't think it's limited to founders like, you know, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, greatest bodybuilder of our time. And you could think, well, it's the testosterone. It was inevitable. But like, he'll tell you if you if you read his biography, which is worth doing in a sleepless night. He got catalyzed into this feedback loop because he won some stupid award at the local gym. And had that person at the local gym not been like, we're going to give out an award to some 14-year-old, we wouldn't have had Schwarzenegger, for the better or worse. And I think a lot of this kind of stuff starts there where the fairly insecure overachiever – Accidentally stumbles into some positive feedback and one thing creates the next. Now, the, the, I believe the systemic issue that we're really fighting is that once that person kind of becomes big and successful, the media team comes into play. And of course, it's very important for them to promote the story of the ubermensch because, of course, that's who you want to work for and that's the image you want to build. And so people forget that, like, Elon was probably an incredibly awkward kid in Pretoria who stuttered a lot. And, you know, who even SpaceX with all of its might and glory, with all of its might and glory, largest private space company on the planet was started by a guy, a rich guy in LA with the purpose of taking a photo of a green plant on Mars using Russian funded rockets. It was literally started like a Hollywood script. That was the plan. And, you know, one thing led to the next and suddenly he was like, well, I can't use Russian rockets. I got to build my own rocket. Okay. I'm building my own rocket. That's kind of interesting. And now suddenly you have, you know, the, what might be the, 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 the greatest company of this decade. We'll see. So, yeah. So like, I think the big thing starts small is one of the most, if, if you were a proponent of startups, that would be the most important message, I think. Um, but, but one thing I'm curious about that, that, that you spoke about Brad is this idea of the canvasser, which kind of actually goes against what I'm saying, because I'm kind of saying like all of these people start small and they don't really know what they're doing, but you flagged the canvasser and the canvasser is a person who does say like, okay, it is time. I would like to devote my life to curing cancer. And I'm just going to figure out the startup to do that. Do you see much success in those models?
2: I think that there's success. Well, I think there's, there's a couple different, there's a couple different sort of personas where it works. I think one is you, you tend to see it a lot in software infrastructure. And I think it's because it's less glamorous and less talked about. But I think that sort of the more tops down, I'm going to look at the really big tectonic changes that are happening in whatever piece of enterprise infrastructure. And I think there's an opportunity to, to leave my company, go most of the time you raise a decent amount of capital out of the gate, which is another thing that, that sort of people advise against. And then you go on sort of this voyage, often, again, heads down for two or three years building this, this really meaningful piece of, of enterprise infrastructure. So I think you see it quite at, at a reasonable frequency in, in sort of that category. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons why that that sort of probably works. I think in the in sort of the other case, I think it can work if the person is patiently looking for the small idea that leads to the big idea. In general, I actually think, and some of it's just more intuitive, that there can be a lot more kind of canvasser type founders that are successful in the future. I think it's, it's just fraught with all sorts of minefields that will lead, that will many times lead that astray. But I think for very patient founders who are willing to do the work, that you can absolutely do it. I mean, the canonical example is is we were investors in this company called Flatiron Health that were started by Nat and Zach, who you probably know. And they did not spend their life in the labs and said we're going to, you know, they said we're pretty interested in this area and then methodically mm. educated themselves and patiently educated themselves to a point without they, sort of any science background. And I think that there are, there are sort of a number of examples of that. Were they, I second about time, sort of,
1: were they second-time founders? They were and is this a common theme with the canvassers that probably yeah
2: uh, mainly just cuz they are they're able to sort of do that right
1: um, for you know sort of obvious reasons but i think that you
2: if you are canvassing the the, the few things that i'd probably keep in mind to, to increase the chances of success are tremendous amounts of patience and i think you know if you if you say sort of i'm leaving i'm going to go work on some idea in you know messaging or pick whatever you now have this ticking time clock where you're like, you know, people, you're catching up with people. Oh, how's it going? You know? And you're, you're highly incentivized to immediately get to sort of this grand idea. And, and the, and I think so many companies are, regardless of if you're sort of building in a top down or bottoms up fashion are screwed up this way in that a small amount of time is, is going to, in a relative basis is going to be spent on sort of this kind of general area you're zooming in on uh proportionally to like the, the amount of your life you're going to dedicate to this but there tends to be even more urgency about finding an idea than executing a business which is kind of an odd thing so so I think one is you, you um and and Joshua I work with sort of frames it as the, the 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 thing to think about is is distance traveled and so I think as you're thinking about an area and you're working on an idea that that sort of really resonated that that you should be celebrating the the amount of distance you've gone in pursuing this idea not the inverse, which is like how close am I to sort of landing on the idea I'm going to pursue I think that's one. The second one is that I think when you're, when you're doing more top-down startups, there's a risk of not going deep enough. And then it's very much set up to be quite lazy. And so, you know, you're interested in some part of logistics, and so you do some research and you read some papers and you talk to a couple people and you're like, oh, I think there's the opportunity to create this online marketplace or whatever. But you don't go deep enough to deeply understand what's going on, who cares about what, you know, if you're doing something in the, the sort of canonical example would be if you're do, doing something in warehouse, go work at a warehouse. And I think that if you do something tops down, it's, it's, it's highly unlikely that you're going to do that. And most of the time, it's going to be the head of this fulfillment center who's going to realize the specific problem in a much more authentic kind of a way. But I don't think that that means you can't do it. But I think that kind of the second thing is you you just have to go very, very deep and be willing to do the hard, unfun work during idea exploration. And I think if you kind of focus on those two things, you can probably increase the 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 chance of landing on something. And I I would say, I guess, the, the sort of last area is looking for the small idea that gets you to the big idea, which is sort of what we were talking about earlier. Is really trying to find that insight, that little thing that you can execute against for the next few months that you could see kind of loosely leading to this larger thing. And again, I think building a startup in that fashion makes, you know, big ideas and we're going to go change this and that, but not like, okay, three weeks from now, if you've built something, who's using it and what have you. And so. I think if you probably did those things you could you could meaningfully increase the chance of success. We see a lot of the inverse, which is just what I would define as like lazy entrepreneurship. I think it's like at an all-time high right now, which means that a lot of the top-down startups are kind of bastardized, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I think you know it's it's interesting. You mentioned one interesting effect that happens here is in Silicon Valley with the canvassers, especially if they're second-time founders or executives as a company that leave, um, which is they are caught in this rut where... The, because they're in this ecosystem, although they are playing, you know, what we defined earlier as kind of an opaque job or an opaque game, they do have infinite motivation because they're constantly meeting people and people are asking them, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And every time that question gets asked, you know, inside their heart rate surges and their gut lurches and they're thinking, well, I don't want to be a dabbler for the rest of my life. And so you while, while you're defining, I think, a negative property, which is a, it can cause them to kind of leap into the ballgame a little bit too early um, because they just want to be able to say, finally figured out what I'm doing. This is what I'm, we can also define the inversion of that, which is again, what I think kills many startups, which is if you're kind of a founder outside of the, you know, Silicon Valley ecosystem, no one's really asking you that question. And it's really kind of just you and the internet and, you know, as I wish the potency of Zoom and chat rooms was as good as the real world, but it's not. Um, and so it's very easy for you because you don't have that. We get the other negative effect, which is at some point you're like, oh, screw it, whatever, goodbye. And that's why I think the golden moment is one where you manage to get some semblance of success in your product, maybe by accident, maybe by reality, such that you're motivated to continue working on it. One thing I worry about is I do think founders... Um, are at the end of the day, status and hierarchy maximizers. That's kind of all they do. I think they're very good at that. Um, I think they're very poor at picking the right hierarchy to maximize. You, any founder will tell you their story about their you know mileage point hacking. And you kind of think to yourself, why are you spending time on that? And I, I mean, I think to myself, why, why am I, are you? Why am why why I? I you I'm know, curious. United send me an email and they're like, well, we can offer Love you the game. And I'm like doing the math. Yeah, but uh, you know, the, what I tell myself, at least, is it's just another hierarchy, and my brain very easily could get fooled into maximizing that. My point here, um, I have nothing against United Airlines. Um, the real evil here that I worry quite a bit about, though, is Twitter, because that is another hierarchy I do see. This is less on the established second-time founders and a little bit more on the earlier-stage folks, first-time founders – really can get lulled into the abyss of Twitter where they're chasing status as if it's revenue. And so what this translates to is getting stuck in this feedback loop where you know you tweet something really good and it gets liked by a kind of someone you respect, you know. Um you know Patrick Collison liked your tweet, Paul Graham liked your tweet and then you think, "Okay, well that that was that was a nice dopamine rush. So I ought to do that again and again and again." And some people even at a halfway step, they get their product to a point where it's like Certainly in the 80% of the 80-20 rule, not fully fleshed out, and they send it out to a few friends, and then that's enough. Taking it the last 20% didn't matter, because the main thing that mattered was getting some approval from the people that you love, the people that you like. And the problem, obviously, with status is, unlike revenue, status is infinite. So, like, PG can like your tweet. Uh, that costs him nothing. You can like tweets all day, and so it's, like, less meaningful than revenue, which, obviously, for someone to part with, you know, they cost them something. And I think one ought to be really careful I don't know in uh, well if in liking tweets no but one ought to be really careful in um in 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 dabbling in this kind of stuff because I I do find it's funny I feel like we're talking about the problem at the different edges where you're kind of touching on it on the on the kind of uh, how would you say high octane fuel canvasser like I'm going to build a thing where part of the issue is like they get overfunded really quickly there's all that torture there and I think even at the low end you have similar issues kind of different problems but fairly similar ailments of people getting stuck in this, you know, black hole feedback loop of pandering to the intellectual elite as opposed to doing things. I don't, I mean, yeah, I mean, I wish wish that would change. Um, Because again, I think like, if you take that game away, Founders will just maximize another game. And of course, you know, if, you, if you're a believer of the free market and Hayek and what have you, like starting a company that produces value that generates revenue is the like, correct thing societally to have people maximize.
2: It's also interesting that, that you see that. I, I'm really curious about a lot of talented people. I sort of squander the opportunity of the company they're creating. And you, you often sort of see it in second time founders. And I think one of the things sort of going back to, to sort of status and approval, I think one of the things, one of the sort of classic mistakes is that, uh, you know, you, you had some level of success in your first company, you're creating your second company and you're, you're talking to, to sort of investors or sort of senior people and everyone is backslapping you. i mean, into, Oh, this is such a great idea. This is super smart. You know, Oh, this is brilliant. And and most people are really trying to optimize to be front in line if and when there's the opportunity to invest in this thing that may or may not work, and I think that you you know once you have some status or credibility, most people are are not incentivized to tear this thing that you're yeah. working on apart. And so now what happens? Is you have somebody that you know had some outcome or, or sort of what have you, or the most incredible thing that I find. Is you see you see people that, that have come out of name brand companies today. Yeah. And there's so much backslapping that is happening. It, it, it's they weren't even a founder before yet. But but they were a director of X or a head of this, they were employee number 19 at this company that really worked. And you know, they're spending time because a lot of investors are reaching out and saying how great this is. And it does not mean it is it is incredibly corrosive. And then they end up doing the classic thing. They raise four to five million dollars. Yeah. You know, and you see sort of that that sort of squandered opportunity when, when ultimately, what matters is is whoever you're sort of building this company that you're in service of. Obviously, sort of not shareholders in this way. It's it's very
1: peculiar. It's it, yeah, and and where I'm especially tickled by it that I see frequently is um, when it's a pseudo technical domain. So I see a lot of these in the machine learning world. And what I find so funny is these guys end up raising giant rounds, and they're like, oh, you know, we. Uh, Please, would you, uh, you know, like to like to work with me at some point? I, you know, I, you you speak to them a little bit, and you realize halfway into them talking to you about their business, and they're say working on some type of machine learning data annotation thing. You realize not a single person has actually asked you what you do because in the back of their mind, here's what they're thinking: um, okay, you like did whatever whatever data thing at Facebook. Facebook seems like a good company, produces good people. They have some data science there, right? Okay, great. Now you're working on some data, data, but whatever thing. These other people invested, so it must be okay. And maybe you'll get acquired if it fails. So I probably should invest. Yeah, like what we were saying earlier about space, you know, these people are like doing deadlifts on the moon. You don't build strength that way. There's no gravity. There's no stressor. And I think they realize they come back to Earth at some point. They're but, weak. But,
2: but 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 I think the, the unfortunate thing is that it takes a while
1: it takes a while because because for they, a lot of
2: people they're raising a lot of capital they're build the, the momentum is there and it, and it's a shame because it could be 3 to 5 years of smacking their head against a wall where this is a, this is a talented person that if, if in in some way was pointed in a different direction or was willing to do the very very hard work of figuring out the thing they're building for whom what have you that it might not have sort of gone in that direction
1: let me ask you this um Uh, have you ever had the conversation with someone maybe in this position of like, maybe you shouldn't raise too much money. And have you ever had the outcome be different from them not listening? (laughs) (laughs) No. So it's incredible, isn't it? Like that there's so many aspects of advice. I feel like that are, you know, um, what's the other trope is like, uh, you'll get a call from a founder and they'll be like, Bob can't figure out what to do with Bob not sure he's good, I'm not sure he's bad. There's always some justification. And you're like, well, "I th- you need to fire Bob today." And they're like, uh, "Never fire Bob. Always call you 6 months later being like, "I fired Bob." So great. <laughs> and so it I six have six done it 6 months ago exactly. And now I will tell other people the same story. And by the way, I was this exact person. I, you know, I remember um Jeff Ralston was the time an angel investor in my company. I remember calling him up about my Bob, and he said he gave me this quote. I won't forget it. I didn't listen to him, but I won't forget the quote. He said, "You have two options: either this guy doesn't have a job, or no one at your company has a job." Um, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, whatever." Anyway, move, I, so anyway, I just find it so interesting. I didn't listen to him for six months, and then I fired him. And to this day, I'm uh, have the battle scars and, and scar tissue to show it. But I find it so interesting that that there's these tropes of advice that you cannot deliver to people. Yeah, they just have to experience it. It's experiential learning alone is the only way that can get there. And you can even have this, com- this kind of meta conversation with them about the advice. You can tell them, I know you're not gonna listen, I'll tell you anyway. But yeah, I find the fundraising one so interesting. I think it's something about to the founder, there's again, a number to maximize.
0: Well, you were just talking earlier about we need to give people a sort of small rewards or a small sort of you know adrenaline uh, boosts. But at the same time, we're also talking about how we don't wanna optimize for the wrong things. Yeah. And so balancing threading the needle between creating sort of the right sort of status mechanisms that if people pursue will lead them to a
1: long-term success versus short-term success is, is challenging. And of course, I think you may ask the reasonable question, which is, so isn't revenue that like, isn't the system efficient at the end of the day? Um, and I think the issue is with a startup is, and then I, th- I would be curious if you guys agree, cause this is, uh, it goes against the, the tide a little bit. I think the kind of lean startup thing is actually incredibly overrated, and a lot of the darling companies of Silicon Valley today, whether it's Stripe, Notion, Airtable, whatever, took years to get to launch. Now, I'm not saying you need five years. Again, remember Elon put stuff into space in five years, so just contrast yourself there. But I think the issue with ch- purely chasing revenues, you end up in the situation where one either the project gets neutered before you get to any revenue because it's like takes a while to get to the or I don't know if you guys see this. I, I kind of certainly see this in my little um, uh, looking at very, very kind of small embryonic projects, let alone companies where the person gets told by, you know, some VC, some partner at some firm that they need MRR, they need MRR. And so they spend two years going from like $1,000 in MRR to $1,200. And so like, a, or instead, what you want them to do is say, take a step back and figure out how to build something really great. Uh, and so, yeah, I think like revenues, the system's not totally efficient there.
2: I think, particularly once, once founders raise venture, the short term dopamine hit that revenue should be, they've been reprogrammed. Yeah. And that, that I think the, you know, raising your next round at a huge markup from firm X provides more dopamine than signing a big six figure contract or sort of what have you. And I think it's it, it sort of, again, because the game has somewhat changed
1: that people are playing in. Um,
2: I, I think in terms of the, the, did you want to sort of follow up on that?
1: I'm going to let you speak in a second. Yeah. I do think this thing comes in cycles and counter cycles in the sense that in the social networking cycle, I don't think there was this focus. I think engagement users, that was the meme. And I think now we're in like in an SAS cycle and so kind of revenues the meme, but like all memes, they kind of gets overused. Um, and so it wouldn't surprise me if. Uh, we're kind of a little bit uh, trading a little bit ahead of the of of the market here in the sense that at some point it shifts back again
2: and and just related to that I was you know so many of these things if you actually get down to like what it takes to create a great business have nothing to do and like the the classic thing that I've noticed is that employee headcount is this thing that is worn as this badge of honor And, and when you host things and you bring CEOs together Every, Oh, Oh, you have 400 people. Oh, you, you know, and nobody's thinking about like, well, let's talk about revenue per employee or let's do a WhatsApp or an Instagram. Let's try to have like a nine person company maximize sort of value. And it it, it's an, uh, when you zoom out and you say, I find this all of the time. Headcount is this. It's status, um, and it's so again, it, there's a lot of things that that people do that are that are often inconsistent with the fundamentals of kind of creating a business. But the headcount thing is 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 so rampant even today,
1: and it's super rampant. You also see it in companies; it becomes a very big deal to grow your tree. And so, at some point, if you're the CEO, it's like, I mean, I think anyone who's run large teams uh, has gone through this experience where. Everyone submits their headcount to you, at the, you know, at the end of the year, and you're like, okay, great, let's cut everything by ninety percent because you have no need for any of that. Um, but yeah, it's it's right, then it's
2: a currency. How big is the team that you're managing? How big is your org? You
1: know, how big? Yeah. So, um, but but all of this stuff is related. Is when when you don't have the right thing to measure, people f- find any number to. to... So,
0: so what hierarchies should we maximize? Sir? Or should builders or founders be thinking
1: anything? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the, I was thinking a related thing recently, which is obviously revenue is the easy answer here, right? Like, um, uh, and I don't mean to get too philosophical or, or kind of, uh, you, for, for that question, you should ask Tyler Cohen. Um, but there is something about when you don't really have revenue, I find, and this isn't a, a new idea, this concept of make something people really love. I think there is something about um, the acuteness of the problem that you're solving for your customers, um, that I wish we could measure, like, I wish we could measure the excitedness of your customers about the potential of your product. Um, when they, op- when you send them that cold email and Gmail, are they replying kind of out of guilt or does their heart really lurch? Um, and if you could really maximize that, I think that'd be, uh, that'd be grand, but I don't know. That's a more of a philosophical
0: thing. We were talking about earlier, we began this podcast, Brett, by talking about there needs to be or the, the process of navigating through ideas is, is underexplored. And I'm curious if, if you guys were both, if there was a pioneer bootcamp, if there was a first front and round bootcamp for people who are thinking about their ideas, you know, testing their ideas, what are some either principles or, or things that you would incorporate in that class? For me, for example, one thing that would be great if we had for the common sort of like a Wikipedia for all the approaches that have ever been tried in a specific space and what they learned from it, all these postmortems that we could, all these decks that we could continue to build off of. No one does it because it's on a local level. It, it doesn't make sense, but on a, that would be incredible from a societal perspective. But even broader than that, uh, what, what would be in your course or in your program for how, how people should be thinking about their their idea? I mean, you, you must come across a lot of people who submit projects are like you're interesting and you did a good approach to this this will never work for xyz reason you should do something else and if so how do you think about
1: get a lot of those and have spent um i guess years now trying to figure out how to change the software in that person's head um for them um like forget me or investing or whatever um for that potential pioneer player they're going to waste a year of their life and like you know, we're back now to this topic of advice and the delivery of advice and how those are, are different a little bit. I, I find one way to overcome this is in the in the person's internal hierarchy and kind of the list and the leaderboard of people you respect, I think there's certain pieces of advice that you can that really only kind of the Pied Piper, um, the person you really look up to, could deliver to you. So I'd imagine if, you know, for the youngster founder, if PG wags his finger at them and says like, don't do that, they'll be like, okay, PG said not to do that. So I'm not going to. Um, And so I think you kind of get, um, how would you say, super user access if this was a computer, like if you're that particular person. And sometimes within Pioneer, I guess I have that relationship with people where I can say, don't do it. What's quite awesome is the really disagreeable rebels um, who may make the greatest founders kind of tell, give everyone the middle finger. And so, yeah, I very frequently see people working on stuff where I've kind of been there, done that. We've all seen that pitch 20,000 times. We know it doesn't work. What I'd like to think about in those moments that I find quite interesting is why is it? Like, why is it there are so many carcasses in particular regions? It's not universally spread. There are many more fields like pizza delivery startups, what to do on Saturday night startups, dating startups, than there are clones of SAP. Why is it? I think it is because, again... a lot of
2: people are drawn to the, you
1: know... People solve anecdotal problems. People solve anecdotal problems because that's what they get excited about and that's what lets them cut through that that opaque fog of, of the job. It's they're excited about it because they anecdotally saw the issue themselves. This is one of the reasons, in my opinion, why you cannot easily deliver a startup idea to someone because you're not going to deliver them that anecdotal. I solved the problem thing. So the, the thing I think about with folks is a little bit less about like a framework to validate your idea and more about how can I make sure you are exposed to the right set of anecdotal problems? Cause on a college campus, you're exposed to like, the, the what to do on Friday night, the Tinder problem, the pizza delivery problem. Um, I think one of the most leveraged things you can do if you're kind of an aspiring founder and trying to figure out what to do is like, just go be an intern at Chevron. Like, how many hardcore technologists are working at Chevron? I guarantee you the number, the, the number is somewhere between zero and nine. And um, that's why Accenture does, you know, what is it? Like $40 billion of revenue. That's not the valuation. That's the annual revenue. Um, I'm Deloitte or Accenture, and I think nine billion of consulting out of that. Uh, it is because these companies don't know how to do software. Now, I can tell you all day about ERP and and try to explain to you what it is. Which, by the way, very few people understand. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, it's 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 like a how would you say Mobius strip where you just think about it and you get stuck in it. But you're not going to get excited about it because you're not going to see the problem anecdotally. So what you want to do, uh, is you want to go like work at Chevron, go work at Exxon in like, I don't know why I'm picking oil companies, but you get the idea, get a sense of what they're suffering from, feel the pain, feel the burn. And then, um, I don't know. And then I think you'll get the idea. So, so yeah. So I don't know if your take on, on is any different, but I, I, like I don't have cash in my head. Validate good, bad, whatever. There's so much content about that online. It's a little bit more about like how do you really get that virus into your head? And I think it's about anecdotal exposure, much like a real virus, maybe.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's true, and that goes back to like I think a lot of lazy work at the beginning screws up a lot of companies because I, I think that you can you can sort of come across that idea through your own lived existence, right? I can be. Uh, running supply chain at Company X, I'm using NetSuite, I notice that it's very slow, da, 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 and I think that there's an opportunity. But I think sort of what you're getting at is you can also, uh, you have the ability, if you can really embed yourself in different environments to find some of these. I don't have to spend, you know most likely if you spend 20 years in supply chain, you're not going to be the right person to go right. build a new version of NetSuite. So I, I think that that's true. I, I think sort of the- related- oh,
1: that's but that's a very interesting observation, actually. Um, sorry, if we, if we just um, focus on that. So you're flagging something interesting, which is, Like the people who have the knowledge and the motivation almost by their very nature are going to make bad founders, if that makes sense. Like maybe the largest arbitrage of startup ideas in the world is you have these bucket of ideas where the only way to get them is to spend 20 years at NetSuite, which very much de-skills you from being a founder. That's very interesting.
2: I, I think that or I think people that are startup rich for ideas are founders today that are, that are, I would say five to seven years into their journey of building a technology company in a traditional industry where they can see the world through in both directions. I think those type of people. So, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're building a, a, a new supply chain company, you're like seven years in and you talk to those people who are sitting in both worlds, modern software, Silicon Valley. Legacy worldwide shipping. That's one of the oldest industries on, on earth. Those type of people that, 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 that see it in both directions, I think are, 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 are really well positioned. Or I think that I'm very interested in the idea of can you take, does, does the, the insight have to come from the founder? I think there might be interesting models where it doesn't and it can come from somebody who actually has an insight in with with very very deep domain experience which generally comes in in doing something for a very long time i'm very interested in, in 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 sort of could you it's probably not a market but are there more interesting opportunities for somebody that has deep deep domain experience to be paired with the right person that actually see this new thing and and sort of something interesting could come of that
1: and so this is we now arrive at the darkest arts of them all which is the art of manufacturing startups is it is it possible? I th- I think it is. I guess it's been done. It's, you occasionally, see this in Enterprise. The Eagles, although that's a music band, but they were totally assembled. Yeah. So how how, how does one do that? Because because I don't know. I'm I'm kind of in the other world of like just fuzz the petri dish and hope things emerge from there. there there is this other uh designer baby game um you know where you're crispering the genes um creating the perfect phenotype
2: One of the things I, w- I was thinking about that daniel you know you sort of touched on this a few minutes ago is sort of this idea of of lean startup versus sort of slow build and i do think that you can you can build companies in either way. And it's not in vogue to sort of go heads down
0: and not just low build, but also like movie script. Like this. like where like boy says like, you, you know, write the screenplay, hire the people, then go, go do it.
2: I, I guess one of the things that, that I've, I've been interested in more recently
1: is sous vide startups.
2: We could spend a lot of time talking about sous vide. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, that, that if you think about the last 10 years there's been so many sort of lean, sort of lean startups that start with this little wedge, this little tool and try to build outwards. And so you take any piece of enterprise. So, um, the call center, there's been all these companies that do these little things and they get like their first hundred K and then maybe a million or a few million or 10 or 15 million in, in ARR. And, and I wonder if there's going to be a lot more slow build, big build companies. Um, in that kind of all these little tools, opportunities, the, the, the amount of tool opportunities are going down over time as more tools are getting built. And then in the case, at least in enterprise software, you, you have uh, buyer fatigue where it's like I'm running a call center and now I have 17 tools. I got my call recording tool. I got, And that really what you want is a wholesale throw the entire thing away. And start with a new modern platform. And there's no way you're going to build that in 60 days or something like that. And so I wonder category by category, like I'm not sure if NetSuite is going to be displaced by this wedge that sort of builds very sort of in this very small way and then branches out or somebody just has to say with the right context, uh, and the right talent because the, the issue with a long build is if it's not being run by the right person, you will never launch this thing. Um, but with the right person, I wonder if, if there's a new a new opportunity and, and a more compelling opportunity to like go very heads down and say this thing has 17 tools and we're just gonna we're just gonna sort of rip all that out and start over. And, and of course, there's sort of adjacent examples of like in many ways notion is this right like the, the early value proposition of notion is like you have your Trello, you have your JIRA, you have all this and you're only a you know 17 person company, this is insane. And so I wonder if sort of the classic bundling, unbundling, as all this gets potentially rebundled, if there's a whole new generation of startup opportunities. Like, and, and I think you see it in, in – you will see it more in enterprise software where like if you go back to, to even looking at Workday, Workday didn't start with like we're going to do this little piece over here and then month by month we're going to sort of stamp out sort of this enormous suite – and so I, I'm curious. I don't know if, if, if you've seen that or you agree or disagree. Yeah,
1: I, I think it's an interesting idea. And it, occasionally you come up, obviously, going back to an earlier point, you want to be careful with the folks evangelizing a grand vision so that they have something to talk about at the barbecue party. But um, I think the question will be there was a period where there was everyone was excited about, I think, the full stack startup, you know, doing things over and over. And there's some companies started in this area. And you not won't mention names because I think some of them struggle. Um, because as it turns out, like the margin in a lot of those businesses is not grand. And so you'd want to be careful in the industry that you select to make sure you're you're really mechanizing something great. The other thing I'm surprised we don't see more of is given and, and I'm not I guess I understand why we don't see more, of we could talk about it in a minute, is um given the cheap cost of capital these days people acquiring much like flat iron health did either uh, at you know software assets or data assets uh as an attempt to catalyze their business now why doesn't this happen more frequently because this is just like a weird api that most people don't even know how to utilize like who do you call to get debt to like buy an asset how does all that like what's the phone number for that what's the website for that no one really knows so the opaqueness is killing kind of us again But but, but I think that leads to some alpha, that leads to some, you know, areas of the market that lay unclaimed, which is, you know, for example, even if all you wanted to do was acquire a product for its sales channel, like let's imagine you wanted to build a a NetSuite competitor or something, and you found something else that has a very good sales channel to, you know, to CFOs, like that style of thinking is very common in the East Coast of, you know, finance, very uncommon here, where everyone kind of starts at the ground floor, but uh, I, I think, yeah, I think some confluence of this, of like a, a full stack startup could work if you were very artful about how you were going to get there. The other exciting thing about this, about the getting there thing, you mentioned, of course, the obvious fear, which is the company never gets there and they spend years in yonder just like building infinite software. But that is an, something that a startup is less likely to fail at, I think, than internal projects at large companies. It's like fairly common, not just where I was at Apple, but I think with any large company to have that giant project, the rewrite, and that never works. Startups for a myriad of reasons are a little bit better at this. Um, uh, And so, yeah, I I mean, I I don't know if it's, it's exciting to think of all the software fortune 500 companies and to kind of think of which one of those eventually could get replaced in time. Obviously the most exciting one I think would be Epic. It certainly would be a um, a service to um, a service to us all, but the healthcare industry remains a, a mystery to the investor. How to properly capture value there is something that escapes me. I, I want
0: to uh, zoom out and, and mention what I think are the three most sort of harmful startup tropes that hold people back from from starting companies. We, we've mentioned the 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 idea is one, basically that you have to have an insight. Um, based on either your passion or, or your knowledge of the problem. And thus, that prevents people from sort of insight hacking or soberly evaluating markets, trying to find the insight. And thus, it h- holds them back from even starting a company in the first place. I don't, I don't have an insight. How do I get an insight? It's founders, uh, investors don't want to work with me if I don't have the insight. The other is um, is the co founder. Uh, you have to have known your co founder since college or have worked with them for a long time. And most people, don't have someone like that, that they're ready to start a company with and don't think that they can founder date or, or meet new people or and sort of build that trust pretty quickly. I think, I think that holds people back. And then also this sort of uh, stigma against uh, There's sort of this expectation that you've always wanted to be a founder. You've never wavered. You didn't stumble into it. You went all in for, from day zero, um, as opposed to this idea, you know, actually you brought it up, uh, Brett, um, where not everyone You know, says that they want to be in Afghanistan (laughs) or be in the military. Some people sort of just stumble into it, and once they're there, they're all in. They're they're crushing it. But uh, it 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 wasn't what they've seen, uh, what they thought they would be doing from day one. And we all often post-rationalize, of oh yeah, I've always wanted to do this, uh, or or especially successful founders, and thus it prevents people from thinking, oh, I could experiment with this on as a side project, or I could try this out, or I could start small. Those are some of the some of the tropes that that I think are most deleterious.
2: Well, should we? <laughs> uh, I, oh, I, any I reactions? think, that's, I think, that's think it's a good well list. <laughs> I think it's very well said. Yeah. I think that, the, you know, in one of the best examples, and I maybe want to chat sure. about them and go in reverse order. Or, yeah. Or, I think it was quite, quite yeah. concise. I don't know if there's that I don't much.
1: know if there's an acrostic behind this <laughs> that spells something <laughs> out. <laughs> was it you,
2: you, should, you should do more contributing. And less <laughs> yeah, exactly. Enough. I think it would be much All more All right, that's but it. I'll let you speak for the next 20 minutes <laughs> and we'll wrap this thing up. I think the sort of related to, to your last point, I think one of the most um, kind of beautiful examples of that. And, and one of the things that I I've most admired about what YC did was they, a, at least in, and you know much more about this than I do. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see sort of if you would disagree or agree. The, the, the most compelling insight I found is that they made company building. They made more people believe that they could be company builders, right? That, technical people that could go build stuff that weren't business people could go build great companies and that entrepreneurship was for them. And if you look at the archetype of, of a lot of the early YC founders, it was all sort of cut from the same cloth. And I think that like, that was one of the great talent arbitrages in, in modern day. And so sort of this idea of, Oh, I was born to be an entrepreneur or whatever else. Like I I, I think people just kind of have to feel like it's for them. And we get enough interesting, smart people feeling like it's for them really incredible things happen. And I think that's one of the best examples. And if you think about most of the, you know, the really interesting founders of the last 20 years tended to sort of lean in that kind of more technical persona, which I don't think if you go back to 14 or 13, that that was like the in vogue sort of great founder to kind of get behind this person that was 21 years old, that's never had a job, never hired anyone, doesn't know general management, doesn't know. Doesn't and, and, dress
1: well, doesn't smell well. Yeah.
2: And so to, to sort of create, to, to make it for them or to, to, to be a potential part of their identity is like an amazing thing. And I think that that could be applied to so many other people that can have this just really profound impact where people start to say, it's not this crazy thing, you know, that it is for me. And that's the thing that I've most admired since the early days of, of YC is that ability to say this, this thing is for me.
1: I I think that's very true. Um, I think they made that the music popular. Um, And I think the largest thing that um, the largest reason, again, we don't have startups is self-editing people saying, you know, Hey, this isn't for me or, I think that really the only trait that is true across almost all founders is at some point in their life, um, they felt like outsiders. I think these are all outsiders trying to seek a way in because the people who always feel like insiders actually tend to do really well in large corporate structures, um, And, you know, they're agreeable and they kind of, you know, do that. But, but the people who feel like outsiders somewhere for whatever reason, for the country that they're in, that they tend to immigrate, or even if they're like born right here in San Francisco, they kind of feel like they don't fit in. Those people almost always tend to do well as founders Um, and you really don't need anything else. But yeah, the amount of people that would email into YC um, batch after batch and certainly email into pioneer uh, that ask the same stupid question is astonishing to me, which is like, should I apply? Here's a startup idea. And I'm like, well. That you send this question is interesting. So I always wonder, is there something else going on there? But I think a lot of people, this, I look, I remember I grew up in Israel. I I remember in Jerusalem, just reading TechCrunch and, and, you know, from my standpoint, Silicon Valley was Rivendale. It was a place in a mythical world um, that literally could have been out of Lord of the Rings. Uh, It was not accessible to me. And I remember going to the YC's website like dozens of times before finally applying and I was on this, this whole weird pressure cooker thing with the Israeli military that I don't think if I had I had I had maybe I wouldn't even have applied. Um, but of course you come here and you realize oh okay this is all real. But I think in many ways you know Silicon Valley's halo effect works against it um, because it seems so unapproachable. Um, and 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 uh, you know the the thing I think people need to realize is yeah I mean all these founders put on their pants the same way you do in the morning. You know, it's, everyone's kind of the same. Yeah. And, and talking about in terms of bottlenecks
0: that hold people back, I, I think the next step there is not just knowing that anybody can do it, but also that it's less risky than you think in some sense, that even if, you know, why well, I see you risk it in some sense, you have you, three months, you, you start something and you come out with this, you're building an amazing network, you're building all these learnings. You know, sort of, even if you fail, it's sort of a badge of honor that you went after it, especially if you, you, you've you raised some money, you made some progress with, with your startup. Uh, and I think there's also this, this, um, harmful thing that people say, no, 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 before starting a company, I need to learn and I need to learn by working at some other company that that's going to teach me how to start a company better than if I just started a company. And I, I find that propaganda by, by companies to attract high, high talent. How do you, how do you think about that sort of, that? That concept.
1: Well, it's interesting. I, I actually, uh, to push back on the last one, um, you worked at Apple. You, yeah. Uh, well, it's true. Like I, I do think, um, yeah, the experiential learning I got from Apple was not one I could ever get in books. Just in, in oh. the, being in the presence of people who I consider to be great, really, really strong leaders to me, gave me a kind of osmosis learning I couldn't get elsewhere. Um, that being said, that's very useful actually for like leading large bodies of troops into war. That is not useful for the guerrilla warfare you need to do as a startup founder. So it's actually different learning. But here's the interesting thing I, I guess I would ask you on this whole learning thing. I often wonder when I meet these people that are just like in, infinite consumers of information and need to learn, 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 learn. I often realize, okay, like maybe you're not meant to be a founder. Um, there's this moment of like, what do you do in a moment of uncertainty? Do you want to like go read posts on like how to solve the uncertainty? Or you just kind of not care and do it. And the latter group is definitely the founder group. So what I wonder is, and obviously the, the answer is always somewhere in between, to, to, to what extent are those, these infinite learners people that honestly should be at companies? So they'd be unhappy doing a startup. Or VCs.
2: Or academics. <laughs>
1: Yes. So some, some of the selection pressure is healthy. Um, I guess, I guess what's weird is because I think the founder, and maybe I'm just incorrectly projecting a lot of myself, but because I think the personality of the founder is already so self-critical, it is more likely than that. That's the people are self-editing out as opposed to, you know, having too many people join in, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well,
2: so given you spend so much time thinking about this now, like when you think about like the ultimate nudge machine to get more of this you know to to get more of the Daniels that are, you know thinking you know, going to military service in, in Israel to say, hey, I want to go in in, in in sort of a different path. And ideally, people from underrepresented backgrounds, I think this is in order of magnitude sort of this this sort of idea of making this thing for them or creating the early structures, those little nudges that get somebody, to say this thing's for me and I'm going to kind of not that that sort of first little bit of friction sort of throw this away. What do you think are like the ingredients of that nudge machine that, you know, you're obviously spending time thinking about but um, and are starting to sort of build and pioneer?
1: Um, Well, a lot of that is... If, I mean the output of of yeah, my thoughts there are on the software of Pioneer, so I think a lot of it is, you know, if you if you look at Pioneer, the website, it's very much structured towards people working on projects, not even necessarily companies. And there's a leaderboard there, you know, which I think is a very potent device to just get people in the treadmill going, um, where you can kind of figure out where you rank amongst relative peers and there's always a game for you to win. Um you know, you may not be the best startup on the global leaderboard, but maybe you're like, you know, top 50 in the country that you're in. And so like suddenly you improve and your score on the leaderboard is directly related to the progress that you're making, which is could be tied to revenue, but not necessarily tied to revenue. And you get occasional attention if you do well from like industry experts, people you look up to, your kind of Pied Pipers, you know, whether it's like a, you know, a Patrick Collison or a Bology or a Tyler Cohen. And, 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 and so like, Basically, pioneer is the boring answer I'm giving you, as I hope is an instrumentation of a lot of my thoughts here, um, a kind of gamification of this whole thing to, to per- get the perpetual nudge machine, to use your term.
2: And, and have you found that, that that is to love the game is, is, is both to be human and or to be positive, positively correlated with founders, or it works for that technique like, leaderboards are very effective for many different types of people, and there's a huge percentage of people that don't really care. And yeah. so, so is the bet that, like, that those two things are are linked?
1: No, no, no. Um, so, so very much view leaderboards as kind of the beginning for us. It is true that there's a lot of people... I think there's a lot of people that only enter games if they have the belief they would win the game or do well, and will sit and, and yeah. kind of play in single-player mode until that moment happens. Actually, when you, when you kind of look at the uh, psychology data on this, women are often in this category too, where what's going on is um, they're actually more correct, generally speaking, uh, at predicting their own behavior. Um, whereas men are mostly overconfident and stupid, um, end up killing themselves a lot as a result. Yeah. So you're totally right. Um, these are just adjustments we must make to the software. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we're kind of making baby steps and we'll be doing more towards kind of a single player mode where you don't have necessarily that leaderboard concept. Um, uh, and so no one can kind of see you in your nakedness if that makes sense, but you still have some of those positive nudges or, like, for example, even in a single player mode, I think a lot of people enjoy kind of competing against prior selves, You know, is this week better than last week? Just for me. For forget everyone else. I think that almost everyone finds some somewhat interesting, motivational sense of progress. So I think there's kind of different games of motivation, and we'll 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 try to serve as many as we can. The I'm optimistic that we'll make it because at the end of the day, um the thing I'm inspired by is it is fa- it's shocking and fascinating to me that we have, th- we make these things called video games that manage to captivate billions of people, you know, men and women of all minorities and what have you, and put them in flow every single day. And so it, trying to use those same mechanics, but to nudge people towards startups is kind of the mission of, um, of Pioneer. And we don't call it as such, you know, we used to, we kind of shied away from that because, um, like that's, that's too confusing to people. No one wants to hear about gamification. They just want to hear about like, do you have funding for me? Um, uh, but th- that's the mechanic through which we try to accomplish our vision. Um, and it's little touches. You know, I'll give you an example. Something we were talking about just in the office today is when you log into the thing, there's kind of a progress bar uh, of kind of where you stand and you have to make progress week over week. And you know, one, one thing we're looking at now is um, should the progress bar like start at zero? Or can we like accelerate you a little bit so that you feel like you made some pro- and like just that lift alone? I suspect would drastically increase engagement for us. Um, There's been
2: a lot of research. I'm sure you've seen this about progress bars in software yeah. that yeah. You, you need to start with your 10 percent or something like that. Yeah.
1: And yeah. any,
0: any of the striking learnings you've had? You know, you've been doing pioneer uh, a couple years now. About you know maybe there are some Einstein's out there who you're you're not seeing, although I'm sure you're seeing a bunch. Or there are some people who you thought were Einsteins but are not Einsteins. Um.
2: I, I, if I can sort of build off that, anytime I can, I can learn from you is, is a great gift. You were talking about kind of the idea of like uh, map followers and map creators, this kind of idea of, of like opacity. And, and I'm, I'm curious, given what Eric, Eric was sharing, like what have you found in terms of if you're trying to figure out like if, if there's two dominant camps – and either through the software that you built, or, or you're just meeting with Jane and you're sitting down, yeah. and you're trying to leave that meeting. And then there's, you know, early in our career, whatever. If she's kind of the map follower, or map creator kind of uh, person,
1: um, I'll try. I'll try to cover all of these. And um, you know, to the question of, um, you know, what have we learned in terms of, you know, people select good or bad. One solid change we've made is uh, we used to be very focused in, in our promotion and our media on highlighting the individual because um, we were excited, honestly. Um, but if you do too much of that, we found you end up chasing, you end up finding these people uh, that are kind of these wonderkind resume maximizers. You know, here's my TEDx talk and blah, 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 blah. And again, founders maximize any hierarchy that's in front of them. And these people are just stuck in a bad hole. And so we've since kind of shied away and very much try to focus on, check out this amazing project or company this person's making pay no attention to like who it is which i think is the healthier correct focus it also i think and so how did you find that insight you just talking to a lot of pioneers and and players and kind of the better ones and the worst ones and it's free you know it's a talk to your users i guess um so yeah i have i have no formula that proves that uh and so that that's kind of been a, a big model update for us
2: no, no if you have a tedx talk
1: yeah, yeah, cancel the TEDx. Here's, here's a link to another website. Get out <laughs>
2: Exactly. It. You're just seeing all the TEDx uh, <laughs> yeah. participation plummet. Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah, find my next TEDx talk uh, next week. No, I'm kidding. I'm nothing against TEDx. But, you, you know, you asked another interesting question, which is you're sitting in a room with someone and just like, you know, qualitatively, how would you assess, you know, what type of person they are? I found this, is, I mean, the interview question, I mean, this stuff is... Um, this is all I spin about. I, I find this whole thing fascinating, um, how to detect talent, both like psychometrically on the internet with videos and interviews. Um, this, and, and so I think the simplest, funnest answer to your question, if you really only give me one thing, the thing I put in my head is, um, do I feel a little intimidated? I actually think PG was the first person to coin this concept. But if I feel a little intimidated, I know I'm, I'm onto something that that person is onto something you're a creator, if you will. What else? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to try to avoid the cliches. I mean, you know, you want to look for someone conscientious and disagreeable and energy. I mean, the the, 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 I guess the other thing that I wonder having like delved a lot into the obvious stuff is the non-obvious thing that's been around there all the time that I can't shake my head from recently is just like general vitality and energy. Like I, f- I find an interesting question. Um, elad gill actually gave me this interesting question about people which is if you run the monte carlo simulation of life like a million times over who's always going to end up ahead versus who kind of got lucky and i think an answer there is buried in just the person's general energy they're just constantly giving punches and sometimes we meet I, i meet some of these pioneers or founders in general and you realize wow like i don't know if it's a metabolism thing if it's like your body naturally produces caffeine but like You're going to continue pushing, and I know this sounds dumb, but it's it's not on the list of like interview things to screen for. But I think it's very big. The 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 one related one that I'm giving these like anti cliches, the super dumb thing, is um uh, maybe two more super dumb things if that makes sense. Happiness, just like in a jovial, not in a I'm Zen and I meditate a lot, and just like things are fine, you know, like. Which I think is really important because um, you're going to get mopey weather. And so you want someone who can kind of stare at the thunderstorm of the startup. You know, oh, you know, five people quit today. And they're kind of like, well, that sucks, but it's fine. A kind of Churchillian happiness. If the, I don't know if you guys have read about him, but he kind of has this like, a, you know, his famous quote is keep buggering on KBO. Very well then. Um, not doing his accent justice. And then the other th- Oh, OK. One final thing I look for is. This is just in general with talent, forget founders is simple intellectual constructs, which I actually found the, the smartest people think of. But there's this curve where like, like dumb people think in simple constructs, really smart people think in simple constructs. And in the middle, you have these, I don't know if it's the insecurity that drives the pseudo intellectualism, basically people's whose minds are comfortable with abstractions. That they don't fully understand. This is very simple to detect when you talk to someone. If you just pick whatever they're talking about in their career and then just dig. And sometimes you realize, I am digging in a kiddie pool. There is nothing there. And sometimes you realize it's, you know, the volcanic vents. Um, But as they describe things, if they describe them in simple constructs, and I'm always struck by, you know, Feynman is the prime example here. You know, playing the bongos and trying to explain to, to you, you know, physics like your child. Elias Sitzker, the, the co-founder of OpenAI, is another person who's brilliant. But he could explain to you things, uh, Eli five to use the Reddit construct. Explain to me like I'm five. It's super simple. So those are a couple of things to look for. I mean, the list is infinite. I'd be curious. What do you guys look for in interviews? What are what are some favorite interview questions? This is the best question of all time. Get on the podcast. One thing Tyler just mentioned to me
0: is that he's so impressed, uh, or sort of, he thought VCs would have way better sort of constructs for evaluating talent. And it's really just gut, <laughs> and people really don't have frameworks for for talent.
1: It's it's very true. It's it's like um, talking. I find at least um, you go meet kind of the, the greatest VCs of our time, and you feel like talking to them about screening talent is a little bit like um, asking Magnus Carlson how he came up with the move, where he's like, "It just came to me." Yeah. And and that yeah, it's just like I don't know if it's like a biome thing or. Or like
0: dating or something. It just comes kind of natural.
1: Yeah, it just happens. <laughs>
0: to some people. Yeah. <laughs> Frameworks for talent or favorite interview question. When I like to ask, this isn't getting at your question, is if this didn't work out three months from now, what? why is that?
1: Why do I fire you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or, or yeah. And sometimes they turn around on you, you, know, on you either bad leadership or something. But um, right, think- <laughs> right,
1: <right, right>, right. <laughs> that would so- be great. I've never gotten that answer. Because I asked that question. I've never gotten that. That's a great answer. <laughs> because you mismanaged me. <laughs> Let's all take responsibility. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's you hired
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Do you have a favorite interview question?
2: I guess I the stuff that I tend to spend time on is just, uh, to what Daniel was talking about, spending a lot of time just asking 20 follow-up questions. Mm-hmm. I actually have a lot of feedback from team members that I... I cre- I have created a very negative interview experience for most people. Uh, and I've been working on this and I actually thought it was a lot of my nonverbals. And so I've been going in and before I sit down, I'm thinking smile.
1: Are you like gargling and, before in the bathroom? Really
2: warm thought. And, 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 and I go to the interview and I'm thinking warmth and positivity and I leave and I, and, I, and, I, and I'm on a loop, in this case, internal hiring, but whatever and I talked to and the talk person, to hiring manager. Yeah. And she's like they had a very they did not enjoy that experience. Red person is the FSB. And, and, and because and I am sort of dumbfounded. I was so excited about yeah. this performance that I just put down. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's sort of an aside. Um but uh, one of the reasons that I think I have that sort of effect yeah. on people is I'm just constantly asking follow-up yeah. questions. And and so places that I think you you tend to find really really interesting things exist in sort of any decision point um, that somebody has in their career. Why they left a job, why they joined a job, what was their criteria? If they didn't join that job, what other jobs? Why didn't they choose the other job? Like I, I, I think, and I've learned this from from a, from a few different people, that there's something very interesting that happens when you spend a meaningful amount of time in between. You went to this school. Why would you go to that school? You chose this major. Why? What else were you considering? Did you, you know, and, and I think I think part of it is in most interview loops, people don't spend a lot of time talking about all the transitions in life. And so what that means is that a lot of the content that comes up tends to be um, very rehearsed and sort of very standardized. And so I found that that's sort of a pretty interesting uh, interesting place to, to sort of spend time. So I'm just constantly asking sort of many, many follow-up questions. Um, and it could just start something broad, like think about your last role, and you know, uh, when you think about the things you're most proud of, what are the three things? Okay, and then spend twenty or thirty minutes going one by one, sort of diving into sort of what was the situation with any given thing. Why were those the three out of any project they could sort of think about? And I'm I always leave with with a lot of interesting uh, mm-hmm. interesting material doing that. I also like just asking, and I think a lot of people do this now, but I I like asking them for like. Think back to your last performance review and in as much detail as you remember, what were the contents of that? Um, and I, I found that the, the the question of like strengths and weaknesses or whatever, again, everybody has a canned response. For, but something when somebody like accesses this yes. it, it feels less like somebody's gonna directly lie to your face. And that 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 you're looking for a level of detail that's just hard for human beings, I think, to like fabricate in thin air. And so I find like that type of stuff or what are the last few examples of very critical feedback that you've gotten from your manager or peer or whatever and then spend time there or just kind of looking for these little, these sort of like interesting, authentic kind of things to grab a hold of to spend time on. Um, but I mean, one of the things that we talk about as it relates to founders and I, I really strongly resonates sort with of the, the ability to sort of simplify. And I think that there are many times that we have the opportunity to meet with, with a founder and you leave the meeting more confused yes. than when you came in. Yes. And that is generally, there's a couple of, but that's generally a very negative sort of leading indicator. And one of the things that, that, that we were talking about last time that, that I found is probably one of the most strongly kind of correlated things is the ability to kind of zoom in and out and the ability to, to sort of what I think about in terms of the altitude shifting. Mm-hmm. And I think most of the, of the best people at, at sort of any juncture in their career have this knack for sort of setting the stage in really simple, broad strokes about what's going on and why you should give a shit about this and, 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 and sort of these tectonic sort of things that are going on. And then at any moment, either if you ask a question, um, or if they're in the way that they're telling the story, they can get, get down into, let me tell you the story of Bob and the problem that he had. And we got this feedback last week. And, and they just have this, this magical ability to move up and down. And I find that that is a rare a – rare. you tend to find people exist in one or the other. So the classic would be like that person that can't get out of the weeds and you leave that meeting and you're just like, I don't entirely know what they do now. And it feels more complicated and harder than it was. Then the other person is like in the clouds. They're they're sort of like this canonical executive, where everything exists in sort of big. It's it's like a TED talk, yeah. And that's painful. And so like that that ability to kind of altitude shift uh, is is really strongly correlated. And I think the best founding CEOs they have to be in the details. That you know that there is no one to delegate. There is no and and, and, and so it, it 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 sort of gets at this sort of innate kind of really in the weeds. And then can sort of context set and zoom out and go up and down. And so you, you very, you, you can very quickly in a 20 or 30 minute meeting know there's, there's sort of somebody that sort of up, that, that's able to move up and down in that, uh, in that way.
0: Some tropes we, we've been talking about are tropes that, uh, that are, are not true or too simplistic and, and hold people back. Others are what, what you've called, bread, which I like this framing sort of possible, but not optimal and thus are, are tropes for a reason or truisms. Uh, things like, you know, Kevin Hartz and Julie Hartz did start a company together, but. It's possible, but perhaps not optimal to start something with your significant other, or it's uh, you know the Warby Parker CEOs were co CEOs, and that's possible to do, but not optimal to have co CEOs. What what are other things that come to mind for other of you that are the possible but but not optimal?
2: So I I would say there's there's been there's been so much that people are so drawn to this idea of just build something great, everything else takes care of itself, it sells itself, whatever. And, and so I think like in, in some ways sort of how you bring a product to market and how you're selling it and all of that is, is, is sort of probably one of those things. Sure, maybe you're going to be one of the outliers that you just build something and it takes off like wildfire and then you layer on some sales or whatever else. But I think in general, like being quite rigorous about the way you're going to distribute a product product and does it make sense to actually have a sales team or inside, outside or whatever else. I think there's, there's a whole set of, of sort of things that is possible but probably not optimal. And I think sort of the the thing that I'm always in, intrigued by, and, and and sort of my my friend Zach Caner spends a lot of time, who mm-hmm. sort of you know thinking about is, does something happen because of something or in spite of something? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is one of the challenges. Like we're, we're constantly trying to learn from companies that work or don't work, and sort of build this yeah. sort of meta model of the world. And I think it, it's one of my favorite thought exercises because. Uh, one is that 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 it it is quite an outlier event for something to, for somebody to have a kernel of an idea and then it's instantiated in this long lasting company that is serving millions and millions and millions of customers, et cetera, et cetera. And so, because of that, all of these weird things kind of happen along the way, and it's and it's always hard to say, to, you know, um, so like a great example would be uh, Stripe shared a lot in the early days about their email system and all this sort of open email transparency, or whatever. And so. You know, was was that a part of it, or, or would the company be more successful early on, actually, yeah. if they had no open transparency, or,
0: or a transparent um, comp? Some people do.
2: You know, you have. Um, I, I think a, a really good example of this is is just is distributed uh, and distributed in remote teams, which I think is incredibly interesting and very very important. And there's a lot of reasons why that makes sense. But because you can't A/B test this, like you know, take a company like Envision, pick a random market cap. Let's say it's a two billion dollar company with a thousand employees, or HashiCorp, or whatever. Now it was centrally located. Would it be like a twenty billion dollar company, or would it be like non-existent? Wouldn't even work. Yeah. And so, getting to sort of ground truth and 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 we we like to really celebrate the peculiar ways that companies operate early on, uh, like in, in a broad-based point of view. I, I think a lot of companies tend to tend to be successful more in spite of than because of. Yeah. It's also not lost on me that most companies when they get to a, a, a specific size, start to look like all other companies. And, and and certainly Apple is run very differently than Google. But like the idea of we have no managers, we, you know, all of this type of stuff, we tend to converge on sort of like a modern kind of organizational design concept and sort of what have you. And so I think the, the other thing that kind of makes all this tricky is does something work uh, because of something uh, or in spite of something, and 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 as, as sort of I think we've chatted about before, that the the this sort of you know imaginary sort of product market fit is like the the most incredible shock absorber for incompetence. And you know, if something's really, really working. You could do a whole heck of a lot of different stuff, and this thing will continue to work. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by that. and because obviously, like in in terms of first round, like we're in the the business of ideally, figuring out early on what, what thing tends to be correlated with some sort of, of large outcome. And it's, it's very, it's very tricky. And that sort of gets at the idea of what should you invent versus adopt best practice or, or what have you. And, and again, my like general feeling is like at a high level, more stuff, Tends to tends to work in spite of something versus uh, versus because of something, but it's very related to to sort of this idea of what is optimal and what is possible. Yeah, um, you could quickly say, okay, Warby Parker, which has had this incredible success in co CEOs, are all have co CEOs. It's so great, you know. Yeah. And I think they have sort of a unique set of things that it ha- has has worked has worked really well but that also gets at a lot of your thinking about like i I think we've talked about in the past like where can you adopt something versus not and you take this thing and put it in a different context than a totally organ rejection yeah you know
0: falls on the ground remix it you said organ rejection yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you take the Google
1: organ and put it in an uh, Apple, it just won't work. Right,
0: right, right. If we were to do something as sort of as a as a community startup leaders in terms of trying to reduce bottlenecks to people uh, bottlenecks to people starting companies, we talked about some of the cultural ones. They have to believe they could start companies, believe it's less risky than they think, believe they can start small. I'm curious for, for other things that come to mind. So for me, it's structural ones like immigration or health insurance. I'm sure there's, there's numbers of, uh, you know, ISAs. Student debt. Yep. Yeah. You, you've been experimenting with, with that. Uh, Daniel, perhaps you, you'll, you'll, do more. I'm also uh, interested in this idea of, um, of founder diversification. I, I think right now more and more people want to be VCs than probably ever, partially because it's just a better economic model. We see, uh, they, you know, founders have one bet, VCs have dozens. And, um, we see even with, you know, uh, rising valuations, you'd expect like way more founders to to come in, uh just like in terms of supply and demand. But um there still isn't this way of, um you know, it may be de risking a, in a career sense of what you can do next, but th- there is this sense that you're all in on something. And I know that's important to VCs, for founders to, to, to be all in on something, but I think you can be, you know, 99% all in on something and have, you know, scout investing or shared equity with other startups, which you explored, we talked about last time. And I think, VC should should help enable that in some capacity uh, because I think there are a lot of people who go into VC who should be founders, who can be founders. And um, part of that economic tra- trade-off maybe doesn't make sense for them. Uh, I'm curious if you have your reaction to that or any other bottlenecks that, that you see.
2: I mean, one specific bottleneck is that I think it's very taboo for an early-stage company for the CEO to have any meaningful amount of
0: co- cash compensation.
2: There, there are good reasons for that, right? That there's a lot of, again, adverse selection. If you join a company, you raise three million dollars, and the CEO is making two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars or something, which which would be way off market in terms of today. But I think if you are able to raise venture, it feels like it would make it much more accessible to a lot of people. If you know, if if you have a family in San Francisco with two kids, et cetera, et cetera, and you don't, you haven't made a tremendous amount of of, of money, it would be very hard to live on. Pick a number. And so I, I wonder if that's, sort of, if that's sort of one example of something that could systematically be changed and, and, and if it makes sense, give somebody compensation to, to sort of support their family living in San Francisco. It gets at sort of people building companies in other places and what have you. But, but I wonder, just because somebody can't live on 50K with a family of four or five in San Francisco, I don't, mean that, I don't necessarily believe that that means that they're going to be a bad founder or they're not tenacious or so they don't have the right insight or what have you.
0: For people who want to go deeper, uh, check out uh, Pioneer, pioneer.app, uh, and uh, check out First FirstRound, firstround.com, and follow these guys on, on Twitter and such. Uh, my guests today have been Brett Burson and Daniel Gross. Thank you for coming back on the podcast. Yeah,
1: thank you so much for having us on. Thank you.
0: If you're an early-stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash Catalyst.